Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed Season 10 of The Deep. Just a note to let you know that seasons will now be eight episodes long. But don't worry, I am reposting some of my absolute favourite episodes, like this one, so you'll never be short of something to listen to. You can also subscribe to The Deeper Membership where I post a new episode every fortnight, even when we're on break. That never, ever stops. There's links in the show notes to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Android. We'll be back with Season 11 in January. See you then, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Sandra Pankhurst, one of my favourite guests of all time, one of the inspirations behind The Deep, truly. There has just been a film made about her. It's called Clean, and they were inspired by some of this interview with her. So here it is. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In those days, if we went out as in drag, we used to get bashed by the coppers, right? Because we were in drag. But in the same token... Through this happening and my standing up, and in the 70s, I'm sex change, I'm a um, drag show performer, I'm a prostitute, all this. They had the utmost respect for me for gunning this guy. Do you know what I mean? Because I, hell or high water, I don't give a fuck what people think about me, but you do not have the right to do that to me. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. I read the best-selling book, The Trauma Cleaner, and I became obsessed with this woman. What is it that makes Sandra so endearing? Is it her early life filled with so much pain, neglect and trauma? Is it that she transitioned when society rarely used the word transgender? Was it the drug use or prostitution? Or was it that Sandra was in need for answers to love herself and to find her place in the world? I had a million questions. I just never thought she would agree to come on and share her secrets with me. She shares her story without filter or care. She's the perfect interviewee. Nothing is off limits today. Content warning, this episode deals with prostitution, drugs and abuse. If you are suffering or are triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Sandra Pankhurst, what a life. Welcome. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, I'm a bit of a fangirl right now because this book is extraordinary. What was the process like? Was it cathartic for you or was it quite traumatic living through a lot of that? Um, look, it says in the book that I have a really bad memory. It's not so much that I have a really bad memory. It's just that you block certain things out. When you've had trauma in your life, you don't want to deal with it. You move on, you get on. And I always look at life as a half glass full rather than a glass half empty. I was a little bit sort of taken back that 
It was, um, you know, I had bad memory. I just didn't want to remember those things in my life. I'd cut them out of my life. But in saying that, the book has been the most cathartic experience I've been through and the most liberating experience. I believe it because when we are taken into your incredibly abusive and neglected childhood. I was actually in tears reading what life was like for you then. What was it like growing up with your adopted family? Because it seemed like for a small part, it was quite sweet. And then it really took this turn. Yeah. When I was told that um, I was, my sister was the oldest and then I come on the scene but apparently they'd had a son just prior to that, but that son had died. And she okay. was told that she would never be able to have children again, so they adopted me. And for five years, things were okay. But then five years later, my brother come along, natural birth, and then um, two years later, another brother come along. So they told me that they no longer required me, that I wasn't wanted, and that I would have to live at the back of the house. That was at seven? Yes. So you were told that as a seven-year-old little boy, Peter Yeah, I was no longer wanted. You had to go live in an outside bungalow with no heat, no water, no toilet, no food. Yes, yes. I mean, can you take yourself back there for a moment and, like, what did you do to feel comfort? How did you get through the time? Look, once a month or so, we had family over and there'd be the Sunday lunch and no one in the family knew the situation. The room hadn't quite been built yet. And um, I I have fond memories of just standing there, hanging onto my mother's leg in the kitchen, wanting to be loved. And as a child, you don't think about what you're missing out on. You think about what you want. You know, every child just wants to be loved. So all I ever wanted was to be loved, but it wasn't to be my thing. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And like, and if I did, the kids did something wrong, I would be the whipping poster. This is what will happen to you if you keep that up, you know. And the old thing was that was the copper stick. And so anyhow, I have, you know, bad back problems now because of, what my chiropractor thought at the time was I'd had a, a bad car accident. We traced it back. No, it wasn't a car accident. It was the copper stick bashings. It was the trauma that your it was your yeah. it was your adoptive father that did the abuse, the yes. physical abuse. Yes. Do you feel like it was hard for your mother? <clears throat> Do you feel like she um, wanted look, you there? Look, I don't really know. I, I think she was like shit to a blanket as far as he was concerned. She was sticking to with him. Um, he is an alcoholic at the time and um, she was abused by him as well. Yeah. And whenever she got bashed, I'd go out to help her and look after her. And But the proof was in the pudding later on that she didn't give, really give a rat's ass about me because yeah. I'd go out and save her. But then it had happened again and again and again and again. <sighs> okay. And this happened for many years, for about 10 years, yes. and then you were kicked out of home. I was kicked out of home at 17. Now, I, I think they actually built the bungalow at the back when I was 13, uh-huh. and I had to live out there. So when I was 13, I um, never 
got to see the inside of the house again. Um, I had to light the hot water service and that was my child, my job for the day. You became quite savvy at uh, being a survivalist, really, in those yeah. circumstances. When you did get kicked out of home, you got married quite quickly and then you had two children quite quickly. Was that another sense of survival? Um, I don't really know because it's like I was such a dumb bugger. You know, I had no idea. I had no sexuality or anything. I knew I was different, but I didn't know what I was, but I knew I weren't gay. I weren't into men with men. So mm-hmm. anyhow, I, I proved that I sort of was introduced to this woman on the train going to work every morning by a co-worker and she was looking for a place to live and I was looking for a place to live. So we ended up renting a place in Newport and um, anyhow, as we rented the place in Newport, I had my room, she had her room and never the two shall twain. But anyhow, a couple of months down the line, she came in and bought me breakfast in bed and one thing led to another and I was so naive, I thought, oh, well, if I can do it with her, this is the woman I'm meant to marry because I didn't want to be anything different. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted to have a normal life. And um, so anyhow, uh, we got married very quickly. We ended up having two children nine months and a week apart. Wow. And um, it was like all this come sort of crashing in on me when the second child was born. It was really, I was finding I couldn't cope at all. And I could have very much, if I'd have stayed in that relationship, been a child abuser, and I knew that I had to go because it was against how I feel. What do you mean by child abuser, that you would be neglecting them or hitting them? or no, what does that I could mean? have picked that child up and thrown it through a brick wall. Wow. So you decided, hoping, you decided I had to go for that. it was safer to leave? Yes. And at this time as well, you had discovered a bar in Melbourne that men were expressing themselves as women. There was some drag. There was some, um, I guess, gay relationships forming around you. This was your insight. And then when was the first time you were like, I want to explore hormones. I want to explore what this would look like for me. Well, how it all really started out was that like, I decided that the marriage was over and I have a very strong remembrance of my eldest child standing at the front door. Nothing had ever been said to the kids in any shape or form. And um, my eldest said to me, bye-bye, Daddy, and that haunted me for years. How old was he? I thought he would have been probably three at that stage. Mm -hmm. And um, it was... Two or three, I don't know, I can't remember. And um, anyhow, that broke my heart. That really sunk and I never celebrated Christmas, never celebrated birthdays and don't till today really. I did when I was married with George and his family, um, but that's another story for later on. Um, Anyhow, I decided I'd go out to the gay bars and I looked up online for somewhere to go and found out that the Dover was the place to go and um, opposite the Trades Hall here in Melbourne. So anyhow, I go out not knowing, you know, what time to go out because I hadn't been out before. And um, I go out at 6 o'clock at night and I go bounding up the stairs. <laughs> I was healthy in those days. 
went through the first set of glass doors into the foyer and then there was no one there. I thought, oh, this is a bit strange. So I went through the next set of doors and the only people that were there were the bar staff. So they were looking at me and I said, oh, is this the Dover? And they said, yeah. They said, you're new here, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. So anyhow, they said, oh, we don't really start till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I said, oh, okay, okay. So I left and went downstairs and coffeeed myself to death around Melbourne and go, went back later on and anyhow there's a bit of movement around the station. I go bounding up the stairs again into the first foyer. It was full of people and um, paid my money to get in and went through the doors of the second part into the room and the look on my face must have been priceless because the table on the left-hand side of me said to me, oh, you're new here, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And um, they said to me, come over here and we'll, we'll gently, you know, let Introduce you know how you. the situation is and all this sort of thing. So I sort of got some friends out of that. Um, but it, well, that was my introduction to the, the gay scene. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And what was your introduction into there was a possible option for you to become a woman? Like there is, there are well, pills. I heard, I heard about um being able to transgender and it was like oh, a light sort of went on it was like one of those bulb moments you know and um, I'd heard these conversations over and over and mind you I'd seen drag shows and I saw the big chokers around the neck and the big hard rock hard tips and everything on their yes. chest and I thought that was all plastic because <laughs> the choke was hiding the joint. I soon realized that no you could have implants you could have hormonal breasts and all this sort of stuff. So my curiosity got even worse. So I started ringing around looking for doctors and that took ages and ages. And I finally came across a doctor in Elgin Street, Carlton. And he said to me, look, come in and we'll have a chat and see how you feel. So I went in and had a chat and he said to me, you realise it's going to take about 20 to 30 years off your life because they destroy the liver and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I said, I could walk out of here now and be hit by a Mack truck. And I said, so, you know, I'm going to go ahead with it. And he said to me, well, if you still feel that way, come back in a week's time and we'll discuss it. So I said, oh, shall I make the appointment now then? <laughs> and he said to me, if you want, make the appointment. So next week I was back on time. I'm never, ever late for anything, never late. And um, anyhow, I went in there and he said to me, are you sure you wanted to do this? Yep, yep, yep. So I started on the hormones, got a little bit cocksure of myself, went to another doctor and then got the injections as well. So I doubled up on the hormones. But what it did to me, it turned this fine person into a big, massive fat slob. And I was 17 and a half stone. Really? And I was like a mobile brick shithouse on the move. It was just, I was so fat. You got no idea. And um, anyhow, it took years and years to lose the weight. and. 
then I ended up having breast implants and then since then I've had them taken out and I've only got, you know, my little mouthful. That's all you need really these days. So <laughs> more heard, than mouthfuls of waste, isn't I've it? I've heard it's a handful, <laughs> but we can definitely call it a mouthful. Um, you, you, well, this was the 70s or the 80s? 70s. And so you went through a full change in the 70s. That yes. must have been one of the first, was it? Well, it wasn't one of the first because they date back quite earlier than that. But the fact of the matter is it was done at the Queen Vic Hospital. I did have the option because I had the money to go overseas and get it done in Cairo. But everyone that come back from Cairo, they come back mentally stuffed in the head mm. or physically ruined. And one particular girl that I know, she had her foot up in the stirrup and the light was too close to it and it just burned <gasps> her foot off. Oh, my and gosh. And they said to her and she said, what about this, what about this? They said, no, no, you only pay for this, that's all you get. And so she come home maimed and most of the girls that come home from Cairo were drug addicts in the end and I didn't want that for me. So I decided I'd go to the Queen Vic Hospital and get everything done through the Queen Vic. And what was it like the morning you woke up post-op? I was absolutely exhilarated. <laughs> I, I didn't really come to terms with the fact that, yes, I'd had it done. I was in a lot of pain because they have like almost like four bolts in your stomach where they've got <gasps> to realign all your stomach wow. um, so that they've got like room for a vaginal passage. And so anyhow, you have that in and that's quite testy. But I was up every morning going to the other ward because you have a private room and you go into the other ward and then everyone's in this mass ward and I'd help the nurses and I'd say, I'll go and take breakfast around this morning, you know. So I'd go and everyone make everyone a cup of tea and have a natter and move on to the next one. So I sort of loved my stay there. It was, you know, it was, I felt quite comfortable. So anyhow, in the end, the nurses said to me, I said to the nurses, look, I want to go for a walk. And they thought a walk around my hospital. So they said, oh, okay. So I got dressed and put some nice clothes on and stuff like that and stuck the catheter up underneath and everything and then decided I had intentions of going downtown, but they didn't have <laughs> know I had any intentions. So I went and bought all the nurses chocolates and flowers and new outfits for me and new music and all this sort of stuff. And, um, Anyhow, as I was going out of the Queen Vic Hospital, and I caught the reflection of this blonde, and um, here you go, and I thought, oh, she looks striking. And then I realised it was me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, that's really exhilarating. So I was on a real high. I knew I'd done the right thing. More from Sandra very soon. So next week, there is more Sandra. And there is a reason for that. Her life takes a completely different turn and it is so fascinating. There was something weird about the steps going upstairs. So anyhow, I went, um, was down the stairs and I just felt there was something wasn't right. So we peeled back a bit of the carpet and it was chock-a-block of maggots. <gasps> and so we had to rip all the carpet up from the, hall, the hallway stairwell and clean all that. But for now, let's go back to this week of Sandra. What age are you at this point? I'm probably about um, 20, 
Three. And you've got mm. a good amount of money. You dabbled in drag. You were, prostitution. I was yeah. about to say it was prostitution and drag. So you'd done drag and then you'd moved into prostitution. Now you had your <laughs> Well, the day job was the prostitution and the night job was the drag. So the night job was really fun, right? And the money job was the sex yeah. work. Post yeah. op, were you excited to go back to work? The drag shows don't pay any money. That was like a, a novelty mm-hmm. act. And um, anyhow, you're sort of doing this, but you're, you're doing the prostitution and you hate doing the prostitution. So you start on dope and stuff like that to sort of keep your head together to be able to do it. And in those days, they used to have a pill called Mandy's, and Mandy's made you Randy. Okay. And so anyhow, we use Mandy's or Mandrax, so are known as, so we had the Mandy's and we'd sort of get all this, you know, will to do anything under the sun. You're like you're a trampoline act or some bloody thing. And um, anyhow, I then went over to Kalgoorlie to work. Can you explain a bit what it was like in the 70s, 80s to be a, a, a trans sex worker? Well, when you go over there and you've got to have all your bits and bobs done, so anyhow, I go over there, you get met by the police at the airport and then you're taken into a room and you're interviewed and all this and all your details are taken and you're told where you can go, where you can't go, what your hours are that you're allowed out in the street, certain places you can't go, um, you have to have an STD check every week and blah, 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 yep. blah, blah. So that was all fine and well. It was very intimidating. And um, then you go to the house. Because I was in house one, door one, and there's like about five houses in the street at that time. These days it's more of a, a touring guide because they don't make any money out of prostitution. So Hay Street's very different mm. these days, very, very different. And um, anyhow, I had this thing that if you looked expensive, you looked like you are making good money. So I went out and bought a wall unit, the best of linen, um, decanters and alcohol and things like that. So it looked mm. flash. It looked flash. So people are thinking, oh, she's making all this money. She must be good. So anyhow, they'd come in and you'd have your little letterbox outside your room um, where you'd go to in the common area. And, of course, you have a little spiralina book um, notepad and you'd write Sandra and how much money the job was for, and you'd go 50-50 with the house. Anyhow, I'd get so out of it on drugs and that at night to be able to cope with what I was doing. You sort of got your money in there, and I was the best earner in the house because there's an old saying, a man knows what a man wants and a woman knows what a woman (laughs) wants. So anyhow, I um, made about the, the, the good money. But in the next day when I'm cleaning up my room, I'm sort of going, wiping everything over and I pick up a tissue box and there's 150 under there and you pick up a decanter and there's another 50 over there and you pick up something else, there's another 120 over there. And you think, fuck, what did I do for that money? And I'm still the top earner in the letterboxes. So I weren't saying bloody boo. So anyhow, this was okay. But the more you did it, the more drugs you needed. So I had to fly back to Melbourne all the time 
to go doctor shopping to get these pills, but it was easier in those days than what it is now. So really, the money that you were making was really going back to feed the drug addiction to keep you going. So it wasn't like you you had a plan, okay, I'm going to go over there, I'm going to make 10 grand and go home. And do something. No, no. It doesn't work like that. Initially, that would be the plan, but the fact of the matter doesn't work out like that because it's quite a restricting and a miserable life, really. There was something that I loved that you wrote about. It was very interesting about if they were drunk enough or out of it enough, you could just put your fist behind your back. Yes. And trick sex. Can you you, talk to me about this? We really had sex with the mugs because, like, as if all they wanted was to be in something warm and tight. And so, anyhow, You'd, you'd lie your um, your towel down on the bed mm. and um, the trick is that I'd say to him, I'll put your arm around me, darling, and give me a good cuddle, you know, and a kiss because it was foreign to kiss a prostitute, you know, they wouldn't yes. allow you. But, like, the minute they start kissing you, they blow their game and they're out. So you whip them in, whip them out and wipe them. That was the saying we had. So um, anyhow, you put the Vaseline in your hand and they wouldn't see and, you get it all warm and everything like that, and you'd know how to make the right texture, and you'd, you'd guide it in there, and that'd be rooting away like buggery, and then it'd go into the towel, and then you'd just grab the towel and pull it up in front of yourself like you're protecting yourself, and then say, I'll just go to the bathroom and clean myself off. And so you'd come back and they'd, they'd end up um, waiting for you to let them out, and then they'd go. And times as a sex worker, when you moved back to Melbourne, turned at a point and there was a horrific incident. Can you talk to us about the night at that brothel? Yeah. There was a girl, Kay and I, that were working there at the time. It was a Saturday night. We heard this almighty noise at the front door and then the power went off. And it was like, what the fuck was that? We didn't have time to think. My back was towards the door and I'm standing there rolling a joint and ready, waiting for the next mug. Kay was getting cleaned up after her mug. And um, so anyhow, this guy come in and just smashed the front door. It sounded like a Mack truck coming through the front door. Before we could even move, my head was grabbed, my hair was grabbed. And Kay was in so much fear that she just freaked right out and he grabbed her by the hair as well. And we had to do sex sex on him for God knows hours, hours. And um, with that then he, oh, it freaks me out. With that then um, we were taken away to a vacant block of land across the road and all you envisage is that you see on the news every night that someone was taken to a vacant block of land and killed, and I thought this was going to be our end. Mm. So anyhow, we were there with him there for a couple of hours again, and it's really dark and it's really horrible, and he's just he's just vile, this absolutely vile, this creature. And um, so anyhow, um, with that, I, I said to Kay at one stage, I leant over and whispered in her ear, and I said, I'm going to grab him by the balls and I'm going to squeeze him so hard he won't know what day of the week it is. And I said, you run and get help. So anyhow, I did that. It didn't bat an eyelid on him. He was just 
cool, calm and collected and just laughed this insane person's laugh. It was really, really spooky. With that, I knew I had to get the fuck out of there. So I'm running. I'm having an asthma attack. I'm falling over, trying to get myself together. He was very casual coming down the street to get us. And um, I'd never seen Kay ever since that incident. And um, as soon as I got back to the house, I rang the madam. I said, get the fucking police here now. We've just been attacked. Get the police here now. The police come around the corner and they said, you the one that rang the police? I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Get in the house there. I said, they won't let me in the house. And I'm crying my eyes out. And um, he put the siren on. He said, you put her in the house. So they put me in the house into a room, but they didn't speak to me or didn't do anything. You know, it was really, I thought there was a bit more honour amongst thieves, so to speak, you know. And so anyhow, that happened and then the police come back and Did they catch him? They did within 48 hours. And um, his name was Mel Brooks of all things, Mel David Brooks. And um, he was a New Zealander. So I had a bit of a fear of darker people for a while. And I absolutely shit myself. But to say, you know, in those days, if we went out as in drag, we used to get bashed by the coppers, right, because we were in drag. But in the same token, through this happening and my standing up, and in the 70s, I'm sex change, I'm a um, drag show performer, I'm a prostitute, all this. They had the utmost respect for me gunning this guy. Do you know what I mean? Because I, hell or high water, I don't give a fuck what people think about me, but you do not have the right to do that to me. You mm. do not have the right to treat no. me like that. And I don't care who you are. So I followed through the court case. The most scary thing was that um, they took me from Russell Street headquarters as in the day, took me from Russell Street down to St Kilda in Barclay Street and we're incoming Street crosses Barclay. There was a hotel on the corner. It was like a bikey's hotel. And I had to go there for the lineup, but it wasn't behind a mirrored door, mirrored thing or anything. It was right up close in front of them, a couple of feet away from them. This whole row along the bar of these New Zealand dudes. And some are looking rough as ready. You've got no idea. And, um, but as I got out of the police car, I just sort of looked around and I could see on the tops of all the buildings the SWAT team and everything with rifles and everything. I thought, fuck, what have I got myself into here? It just scared me even more that who was this person to have had to have all this on tops of buildings and guns everywhere and all this in the street. It was just absolutely mind-blowing. Did he get charged? He's been charged or we followed right through court and he said, um, no, no, I'm not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. But then the prosecution were asking me, look, you're a pretty big burly Sheila, you know, like you could afford him off, blah, blah, blah. And I turned around and I said to them, listen here, have a look at those photos. I said the door come off in one piece, but the architrave all around it was splintered to buggery. I said, if he could do that to that, what could he do to me? They stopped the case. He then changed his plea to guilty and I never went back for a court case after that. I felt like I'd got him 
that was it. I didn't need to know anymore. I didn't need to know how many years he got or anything. That was it. I was done and dusted. Do you feel like you dealt with the trauma? Because that was horrific. It was, look, it was as horrific as it is, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me because it gave me the ability to see that I could work a normal job. And so, you know, out of everything bad, something good comes. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, you know, that if you've had a bad streak, something good is going to happen. Life is cyclical. Life moves on. You know, it's constant changing pictures. And so I'm grateful in a way that that happened because otherwise I would never have seen the light. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for our guests or for me, I'll be hosting a live Q&A on Instagram via at Zoe B. Marshall later this week. You can also submit questions and watch replays of the Q&A on Instagram via at What's The Deep. Don't forget to subscribe to The Deep on your favourite podcasting app. Please leave a rating and review. It's really helpful to help others discover the show. 